If it's 6 p.m. on a Thursday, that means it's time for Lehigh Valley Discourse here on WDIY 88.1 FM, WDIY.org, and our WDIY app. And we start off with Perspectives with John Pierce. Well, it's February 22nd. You know what that means? I mean, the oldsters of us know we were taught that was George Washington's birthday. Nowadays, I think with President's Day, it's getting lost a little bit, Jeff. Yeah. um, And, you know, Washington celebrated two birthdays. I did not know that. Yeah, yeah. uh, The the family Bible reads uh, a son, George, was born on February 11th. So in oh. uh, in the 1750s, I don't, I'm not 100% sure what the motivation was, but there was a, a push for a calendar change. So a uh, somewhat, an individual much smarter than I am, allegedly a monk in the 6th century, realized that when the previously used calendar was put together, probably by Julius Caesar, uh, that they miscalculated the rotation of the earth. And for all those going back Six, uh, well, for him, it would have been 600 years, 500 and some odd years, that so many seconds per day were miscalculated. Oh, my goodness. Added together yes. would give you 11 days. Very specific. <laughs> so for us, it's still, we celebrated George Washington's birthday on the 22nd yeah, of February. And, and he did too, but he also celebrated on the 11th. He celebrated both, depending on where he was. Some places still use the old calendar. So hypothetically, if he was in Alexandria, Virginia, they would celebrate on the 11th. And then a week and a half later, if he was in Philadelphia during his presidency, the capital in Philadelphia would celebrate his birthday on the 22nd. So he was a, he was a lucky man. The voice you're listening to is that of Jeff Finnegan, who is an expert, I say the Lehigh Valley expert on George Washington. Jeff has been on the air before with us. Jeff, welcome back to the WDIY microphone. I'm thrilled to be back. Thanks. Jeff has written a series of books. There are four books at this point called the I Knew George Washington series. So, Jeff, take us through books one, two, and three as far as the title and what each one, the point of view of each one, because yeah. it's the point of view that's interesting. Yeah, the and the point of view, uh, the notion of the point of view was something that I labored over when I did the first book. So at about the, uh, put things in a time perspective, at about the time that Barack Obama was running for president, there was a lot of talk about race. There's still a lot of talk about race as we fast forward, but I was motivated at the time to tell a story about a relationship that Washington had, one of the many relationships that he had, but what I found to be the most interesting relationship was that uh, 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 his relationship with a, an individual that he owned, one of his slaves. So the first book is uh, entitled Colonel Washington and Me was the uh, life of Washington as seen through one of his 123, enslaved people that he had at the time of his death. And that was his favorite slave. Last so, name Lee. Yeah, William Lee, Billy Lee. He and his brother Frank came to Washington in uh, 1768. So at the time, Washington is a retired, very well-known retired colonel 
from the French and Indian War, a war that he began. A world war, the first recorded world war, Washington began it here in Pennsylvania. Sworn to never wear the uniform again, he still is known as Colonel Washington. So in in 68, two young men, enslaved young men, came to Washington's household, the Mount Vernon tract. Frankly, Billy's brother would immediately go to work as a butler. At the time of Washington's passing in 1799, Frank is still the butler at the house. Billy, as Washington's valet, valet meaning, to oversimplify it, Washington takes 10 steps in a certain direction. Billy Lee takes nine steps in that direction. (laughs) He's awake and waiting for Washington in the morning. They spend the entire day together. Well, Billy doesn't retire to his quarters until Washington does. Little did the two men know in 1768 that they're a few years ahead of them as a revolutionary war. The two men would spend every waking moment of an eight-year period together. So the series was created the when series I- of books. Yes, sir. When I decided that Billy would tell the story, and I labored over it, does Washington tell it? Does a third person tell it? Does Billy tell it? Billy tells it. I somewhat unwittingly created a template for future stories on Washington as seen through the eyes of people that knew him well. So historic fiction- All four are historic fiction. All four have been edited at Mount Vernon in Virginia, the National Library for the Study of George Washington, by the then research historian, a woman by the name of Mary Thompson. So she took um, an interest in my first book. She's also the, was, she's there part-time now, but looking forward to retirement. She was also the expert on the enslaved community at Mount Vernon. It has since put out an absolutely incredible book on slavery at Mount Vernon. And so she took an interest in my Billy Lee book and uh, volunteered to edit for me. So as you had mentioned earlier, John, I don't have a PhD in history. Uh, I never took any formal training in research, et cetera. But to have Mary Thompson at Mount Vernon say, hey, I'll edit that book for you uh, was... uh, and as a self-published author too, a large bookseller was going to do the first book, and we had I had kind of passed muster with them, but I declined when they when things the story began to change a little bit. Uh, they said, "Look, you know, if you sign on with us, we're the arbiters of the final product." Uh-huh. And because it is a sensitive story, this man that fights for freedom while owning a hundred and twenty some other people. Um, I thought that if you don't get that right, that could be a problem. So, All right. So that's book number one. Number two was uh, motivated by a document that we were able to obtain as Washington manuscript collectors. The day after Washington passes, December 15th, 1799, so he passes the night of the 14th. On the 15th, his secretary gets up at Mount Vernon and writes 12 letters announcing Washington's death. John Adams receives the first letter as president a good friend of Washington's, a man by the name of Alexander Hamilton, receives the second letter. So couriers leave Mount Vernon throughout the course of the day, communication being what it is, to let the world know that General Washington is deceased. So out of the 12 letters that leave the house that day, only four known to exist were fortunate to be in possession of one of them. In that letter, it mentions that George Washington's good friend, Dr. James Crake, was in attendance at the final scene his physician. Uh, Craig, not necessarily a household name, 
uh, but very important figure in Washington's life. He's his first battlefield surgeon in 1754 at the Fort Necessity battle, which is the first major engagement of the French and Indian War. The two men are together for Washington's four years of involvement in that war. Craig is then a battlefield surgeon in the Continental Army for all eight years of the American Revolution. Fast forward even further, when Washington's within a minute or two of his last breath of this long and eventful life, Craig is standing at his bedside. He's one of the last people that Washington speaks to, and Craig is an eyewitness to Washington's death. So he's mentioned in the letter, uh, and I thought, boy, this would be an interesting perspective. This person that knows Washington longer than anyone, who's alive at the time, longer than Martha, and so forth, tells us the story of meeting Washington in seven in the early 1750s, being on the battlefield with him as they fight the French and Indian War together, all through the Revolution. And then Craig moves from Port Tobacco, which we had discussed earlier. Craig lived there. Washington, in his retirement, said, you know, we're good friends. It takes you a while to get here from Port Tobacco. Why don't you move to Alexandria, which he does. Craig is then the physician for not only the Washington family at Mount Vernon, but interestingly, he's also the physician for the enslaved community at Mount Vernon. Interesting. Yeah. Um, So Craig takes us from their initial meeting in the 1750s uh, through two wars and then into retirement. And what's the title of this second book? The second book is Tiswell, The Life and Death of George Washington. Tiswell are the last two words that Washington ever says. Wow. He dies immediately after. And uh, even though with his impending death, something affirmative, positive coming from him. Complete control throughout the course of the day. He wakes up in the morning of the 14th. Uh, and he is resigned to the fact that today's my last. Oh. And he, uh, the commander, the military man that he is, uh, he gives um, pretty much commands throughout the course of the day. <laughs> Martha, you will go to my study. In the top drawer of my desk, you will find two wills. Bring them to this room. He l- opens both and reads them. He wants to make sure that the proper will is going to be executed. He finalized the will on July 9th of 1799, the last year of his life. He's in perfect health on July 9th. The likelihood is, the speculation is that the other will was one that he would have drafted at about the time that he was selected to be the commander-in-chief of the army. He still has it. He instructs Martha, bring those to this room. He looks at both and he hands one back to her and he says, um, go to the fireplace and burn this will. No shredders in those days. No shredders. There was a shredder in the in the bedroom, and that was his fireplace. It was keeping him warm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my goodness, the value of that will, even though it would, have, would not have been used, the value of that today, his actual will is still in existence. And I emphasize the fact that the second will, the one he did on July 9th of, of that year, paragraph two does mention the freedom of his slaves. Where is that will today? It is, uh, from what I understand, it is uh, in with the county, Fairfax County, that would have executed it. Wills are done on the county level. So Washington died on the 14th of December. His will, Washington didn't make it into the next century, but his will did. His will <laughs> was executed on the, on the 10th of January of the year 1800. 
Interestingly, in the District of Columbia, Alexandria, Virginia was in the district. It no longer is. Yes. It was taken out. Okay. Everything stayed on the north side of the Potomac. But at the time of Washington's death, the District of Columbia didn't make its way into Virginia. So ironically, his will it was probated in the in the district named after him, right? And then that's book number two. How about number three? Number three was um, was inspired by another document that we were able to acquire. So in uh, 1784, the Marquis de Lafayette came back to visit Washington at Yorktown, October of 81. He told Washington that he needed to get back to France where he had a wife and small children. But if you win, and it likely it is that you will, uh, I'm going to come back and visit. And he landed in New York in August of 1784, sent Washington a letter. The likely it is Washington's records reflect that he probably did not receive that letter from Lafayette. Not uncommon in the 18th century. But Lafayette goes from New York to Philadelphia, spends a few nights there. And while he's there, he sends him a second letter. I'm now in Philadelphia, one step closer to you, my dear general, and cannot wait to hold you in my arms and embrace you one more time, et cetera, et cetera. We're fortunate to own that letter. Wow. That letter was the inspiration for the Lafayette book, which is entitled, My Dear General, The Extraordinary Relationship Between George Washington and the Marquis de Lafayette. Yes, indeed. And the uh, Marquis de Lafayette, very important for the Lehigh Valley. We have many entities named Lafayette, uh, streets and a college that's well known. And is your son a graduate yes, of Lafayette? Yes, my older son Jeffrey is a, is a proud Lafayette graduate. Saw that online. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, my dear general. Correct. Is the title of book number three. Book number three. Well, Jeff, it's time for us to take a break. We are just getting started here with Jeff Finnegan, who has written four books on George Washington. And we're going to talk about book number four when we come back. So, dear listeners, this is Perspectives on WDIY 88.1 FM, WDIY.org. I'm John Pierce, your host. Hang in there. We'll be back in just a minute. Did you know that your phone is a radio? You can tune in to WDIY anywhere on the go with WDIY's phone app. Download for free from the Apple or Google Store, and your phone will become your trusted radio. The easy-to-use app lets you listen to WDIY on your phone live and access your favorite music shows on demand. Download and share the WDIY app with your friends and family and introduce them to many choices, real voices. WDIY is Lehigh Valley Public Radio at 88.1 FM, also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. For more local news and information, public affairs, and links to NPR programs, visit our website, WDIY.org. We're celebrating George Washington on the 292nd birthday of his. And my guest this evening, Jeff Finnegan, has written four books about George Washington. Jeff, the first books, at least, were advertised as for young readers. How about books three and four also? Yeah, my, my, uh, my editor in New York seemed to think that 
we progressed up the ladder where two wasn't uh, as simply written as the first book. And the first book was written that way for a reason, because of the sensitive topic of slavery for younger readers to embrace. I thought if we go, some people criticize off, he goes too easy on the slave issue, possibly, but to attract a younger audience, if we scare them off, we're never going to get them back. So an intro to want to know more about it. Right. But, uh, you know, there was that incredible relationship between those two men. So we can make it really nasty, but the relationship was anything but. Interesting. That's a whole nother conversation. And I I respect, you need to respect all viewpoints on that. Right. Extremely. So now that we're we're going to talk about a book number four, is this also for young readers mostly? Yeah, we... so I was able to keep the same team from beginning to end, all four books. Same editor, uh, gal in New York City, Mary Thompson at Mount Vernon, my artist, and the printer. Uh-huh. Same people all throughout. My primary editor, Mary Thompson edited for historic accuracy. But my primary editor who squared the manuscript up for readership uh, seems to think that... Um, Book number two was a little bit of a jump up from book number one, and that three and four are almost adult books. And then uh, let's talk a little bit about the wonderful illustrations. Yes. And give a shout out to... My friend Preston, who is uh, in Florida. I don't know if he he gets WDIY from down there. He can well, log he, on, right? He can, WDIY.org. So I'm going to call him and tell him that we're here on the 22nd of February, right? Right. Uh, to maybe look if they have the shows where he can log on and listen to them again. Sure. Uh, I so I owed uh, I owed Preston a dinner after we we completed book number three, and I wanted to do number four, but he was a little hesitant. The fact that they were retiring, selling their shop, moving to Florida, so I pulled a little stunt on him. The four of us went to dinner. Myself and my wife. He and his wife. We were there for about four hours. We had a great time. Oh wow! It was a great kind of send off, if you will. Yes. And he knew that I wanted to do book number four, but my approach was throughout that four hour dinner, I never said a word about book number four, <laughs> not a word. <laughs> the next morning, my wife gets an email from him. Tell Jeff his scheme worked. <laughs> I'm ready for book number four. He was ready for he, you all the time. It. He knew it. <laughs> so, oh, that's a good story. Yeah. So we did four completely over the internet. Which is, without the internet, we're not doing it. Yeah, between between Lehigh Valley and Florida. Correct. So the fourth one is titled, George Washington, My Dear Grandpapa. Yes. Very, uh, a lot of fun. Very interesting perspective um, throughout my speaking career over the last 10 or 12 years. Many, many, many questions, usually from female members of the audience regarding the potential for a book from on Washington from a female perspective. So you're the interviewer, John, but I'll throw this back to you. When you think of George Washington, who's the first female in his life that you think of? Well, Martha. Yep, correct. So naturally, right? His mother played a big role in his life. She's out there somewhere. Martha, certainly. And not that I don't find Martha as an interesting subject, but I looked into it a little further. And to kind of piece this together quickly, 
when it was apparent that Cornwallis was going to surrender at Yorktown, Martha's only living child, John Jackie Park Custis, who was raised by Washington, wanted nothing more than to be at Yorktown. And against the wishes of his wife and his mother, Martha, he went. He was only there a short while, and he picked up what has been referred to as a camp fever shortly after the Cornwallis surrender. Jackie dies. So the Washington family goes from euphoria, eight years at this point, six years of war, appears that Washington might win. A couple of weeks later, Jackie dies, and their emotions are at the other end of the spectrum. Jackie and his wife, who's still living, obviously, leave behind four small children. Martha goes to her daughter-in-law, approaches her daughter-in-law and says, I'll make you a deal. You stay at your plantation where National Airport is today, Reagan National, is where Jackie lived. The foundation of the home is there. You stay at your plantation with the two older children. General Washington and I will raise the younger two children. And she takes her up on it. And Martha assures her, we'll spend a lot of time together. We're not too far away, uh, but we'll help. So out of the two children, the third child, uh, one of the two that the Washingtons will raise, is a girl by the name of Eleanor, nicknamed Nellie Park Custis. No relation to Washington, of course, because he never has any of his own children. These are from Martha's first marriage, right? So Nellie and her brother, named George Washington Park Custis, ends up building a home that he calls Arlington. That's another story. So that's where Arlington today gets its name. Arlington National. The house is still there. How did it end up in government hands? Again, a little bit of an offshoot here. George Washington Park Custis has a daughter by the name of Mary, very close to her aunt, Nellie, who tells her fourth story. Mary marries a very young, dashing federal officer by the name of Robert Edward Lee. She sees him in the Lafayette Parade, 1824-25. Lafayette's making his way through Alexandria. Yes. She sees Lee on horseback and says, I am going to marry that man, (laughs) which she does. Civil War breaks out. Lincoln summons Lee to Washington, invites him to lead the Army uh, of the Potomac. And Lee, essentially in a nutshell, says to Lincoln, I appreciate that, but I'm a Virginian before I'm anything. So he wears gray rather than blue to oversimplify things. And as a result, the federal government seizes that property, which is now Arlington National Cemetery. Correct. Yeah. And the the mansion there. Yep. The mansion still uh, is on that hillside overlooking. So George Washington Park Custis, I think I'm accurate on this, inherits land from his father who died at Yorktown and, and puts the house up. And he wants to put that house up where he overlooks the city Named after the man that raised him, George Washington. Uh-huh, yes. Yeah. And it certainly does overlook Oh, it's beautiful. So it's really a shrine to Washington. So it's interesting to me that the genesis of your having this fourth book from a female point of view comes from women readers of mm-hmm. yours who said, well, where are the women in here? Yep. And, um, and again, Martha, interesting uh, eyewitness to history visits Washington in the winter encampments during the American Revolution, for the first first lady. But uh, Nellie, uh, I think, was a little more of an interesting as a child. 
she grows up in the presidential mansions. For, so for all eight years of Washington's presidency, one year in New York, seven years in Philadelphia, the presidential mansion, of which there were four different buildings, literally, these are her homes. So and this, and this, frankly, as a young woman, there's a knock at the door as Washington runs the executive branch out of that, those homes. During the work week, there's a knock at the door. There are men showing up, pretty much male-dominated world at the time. So an interesting perspective for her to say, hey, we're, you know, it's all men here, right? right. Nevertheless, these people that are showing up are John Adams, vice president, uh, secretary of the treasurer, a uh, man we mentioned earlier by the name of Alexander Hamilton, and the first secretary of state, a man by the name of Thomas Jefferson. Uh, so these guys don't show up at your house. They're at my house every day, right? So this incredibly unique perspective from a young woman, number one. Number two, her father and her brother always disappointed Washington. They never turned out to be what he wanted them to be. But he found in himself Nellie's attributes were the ones that he was looking for in her brother and her father that he never found. Nellie is everything he wants her to be, wanted them to be, but didn't. She takes uh, singing lessons with an Italian tenor. She takes art lessons. She learns to speak French. So my dear grandpapa is what she referred to him as. Martha was my dear grandmama. And using the French of papa. Correct. (laughs) So when... um, when royal escapees, if you will, from the reign of terror in France, if you made it from the guillotine, you tried to get out of the country, where did a lot of them go? They came to the capital of the U.S. They came to Philadelphia. She is able to speak French with, imagine for a young girl, you've read about Louis Sixteenth. you've read about Marie Antoinette. Now, these are people that knew them, that lived with them at Versailles, socialized with them. Now they're in Philadelphia visiting the president. She's able to have a conversation with him. Wow. And your sources for all of these interesting details comes from letters? So I, I re- all throughout the series, I've relied on Washington's diaries and his letters. So we know where he is. We know who he's communicating with. You know what, how he feels about a particular topic. I find his diaries interesting because when he writes in his diary at night, Who's he writing to? He's basically writing to himself. I don't think he ever imagined that we would be able to go into a bookstore and walk out with copies of what he wrote in his diary at night before mm. he went to bed. Additionally, and I found very interesting when I started to look into Nellie, Nellie met a gal in Philadelphia that she became very good friends with by the name of Elizabeth Bordley. Washington was friends with her father. The two young women would be educated together. Washington would have teachers come to the presidential mansion to educate Nellie. Elizabeth was invited along. The two women wrote letters back and forth to each other for 60 years. Oh, my goodness. And there's a book, uh, let's call it a compendium, of those letters that a woman put together a few years ago. Purchased a copy. How did she sign her letters? How did she refer to Washington? Etc. Essentially, this book, Historic Fiction, allows me the latitude to begin and end where I'd like. I begin it. This is essentially Nellie's last letter to her friend, Elizabeth Bordley, who was written to her and said, we're old. Our memories are failing. 
give me one last recollection of life with George Washington. And thus, this is... Uh, that's the basis that's of George this. Washington, my dear grandpapa. And the book is on sale. Where could people get it? So it's available on our website at iknewgeorgewashington.com. I knew georgewashington.com. Yeah, the title of the series, because okay. all four of these people knew him. Uh, our friends at the Siegel Museum in Easton. Books are available. Uh, the Lafayette College Bookstore. Uh, so two local uh, booksellers that we like, love to promote. And uh, online, and uh, Mount Vernon sells them. Washington's Crossing sells them. Morristown National uh, Historical Park sells them, so we're we're happy to be in some pretty important places. That's great. Yes, I've seen them at the Mount Vernon Bookstore. Jeff Finnegan, our time is up. Thank you so much for coming back to WDIY to enlighten us further on this great president of ours, George Washington, and of course much more. We think of him as the great president. He was so much more than that to the people who knew him. And you have found perspectives which other people have not. My life with George Washington, my idea of, of who he was. So this is Jeff Finnegan, author and history enthusiast. And it's time for us to say good evening to you from Perspectives. I'm John Pierce. Thanks to our engineer, James Zibrot. And thanks to all you listeners. Until we meet again... Remember to be gentle with your neighbor. Stay tuned now for more Lehigh Valley Discourse. If you enjoyed this program, please go to the WDIY website or app to share or become a WDIY member.